Hey there, Sports History fans. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network to share with you an awesome announcement. Now dig on this. Four of our amazing podcasts have clinched spots in the final round of the Sports Podcast Awards, and we need your support to take home the trophy. First up, we've got Basketball History 101, Driving the Lane in the Best Basketball category. Then on deck, we've got Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer. He's cracking up the competition in the Best Sports Comedy category. Marty's Illegal Stick is dominating the ice next in the Best Hockey category. And last but not least, we have Wrestling with Heels on powerbombing its way to victory in the Best Wrestling category. Now, again, we're counting on you to cast your vote and help out these incredible podcasters secure their well-deserved recognition. It's super easy. All you gotta do is head over to the dedicated landing page. That's at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash vote. Again, that's sports. HistoryNetwork.com forward slash vote. Now, let's take another look at Sports Gesture Year with this episode brought to you by, of course, the Sports History Network. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. The Rose Bowl, the game that inspired the college football bowl season, has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy! This Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your place for all things great in sports history and football history. And we have a great history coming up this month because we are in Rose Bowl month is celebrating 100 years of the great stadium built back in 1922. At least that's when it opened. And we have some great guests to help us tell this history. And one of those is on tonight, Matthew Devioz. Welcome back to the pig pen, Matthew. Thank you, Darren. It's, it's always an honor and a privilege to be on your show. Yeah, you have a, a very interesting uh, look into football and we're real excited we really got some great response uh, from your your other episodes that you visited us on uh, talking about your books uh, of course that is uh you know lords of the gridiron one and two talked about some of the greatest coaches at both the college and nfl levels and uh really appreciate you sharing those times with us that's thank you thank you so uh tonight uh our rose bowl topic that you picked is a very interesting game uh, maybe I'll, I'll let you uh, describe it and introduce it and uh, jump right into the history of it. Well, last January uh, w- was literally the centennial of the 1922 Rose Bowl game. It is it's unique in that it is the only Rose Bowl game that ended in a tie. And not only a t- an, a- an ordinary tie, it was a scoreless tie. There have only been four scoreless ties in uh, college bowl game history. This is the 1922 Rose Bowl was one of them. And it was the only tie game ever in Rose Bowl history. And there were some other unique firsts. It featured one, the University of California at Berkeley uh, taking on 
Washington and Jefferson University, located in Western Pennsylvania, the, the presidents there. It was the last time that a small school ever competed in Rose Bowl competition. They had a perfect record and they took on University of California, who they too uh, had a perfect record. So it was two uh, literally unbeaten and untied going head to head with one another in this uh, bowl game competition. Uh, I, as far as I know, Washington Jefferson was, the, I think, had the, had the only perfect record in the eastern half of the United States and uh, California was the dominant team and what was then called the Pacific Coast Conference, but is now later became the Pac-8 and now we know as the Pac-12. Uh, it was, um, so in and, and those days, I'd just like to clarify to our listeners here. Uh, we, we're so familiar now with the concept of the Rose Bowl as uh, the winner of the Pac-12 taking on the winner of the Big Ten Conference champion. Now with the college football playoff, that's no longer true. Usually the Big Ten champion play, takes on the CFP, but it's usually the next best team representing the Big Ten going to, you know, Pasadena to take on the Pac-12 champion. But back in those days, uh, before 1947, that was not true. Uh, the Rose Bowl game, especially in its early years, uh, you would have basically the best West Coast team. Didn't even have to be the Pac, you know, the Pacific Coast Conference, but usually it was, taking on literally the best Eastern team. And it could be an Ivy League team. It could be a team, you know, uh, you know, it didn't have to be the Big Ten, what was then the Big Ten or the Western Conference, whether what it was. It could be anyone. You had Southern teams there. Uh, you had an Ivy League team. Brown played there. Penn State played there. It, and also, it was kind of seen as like an early version of what we now know as the national championship game, because some of the uh, the retroactive organizations that determined national champions before the AP poll was established in 1936 would kind of look upon the winner of those early Rose Bowl games as being national champions, as it were. Uh, so it was kind of like an early precursor to that, but there was nothing official about it. It was kind of like a mythical national championship because, like I said, the AP poll was not invented until 1936 and all that. So what you see here was literally the best of the West taking on the best of the East. And California and that, and that time was one of the most, the most dominant teams on the West Coast and probably also in the nation. Uh, it was they were it was the second year of the Wonder Teams, uh, led by Andy Smith, who was featured in my book, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches. Now, uh, you, uh, updating my rankings now, I rank him 23rd on the all-time list according to my calculations. And uh, he was born and raised in Pennsylvania. I actually went to Penn State University and later played at Penn State, then at Penn, and then later coached at Penn State for a brief time. And then he went out to Purdue University. And this is a funny story. In 1915 or, uh, 15 or 16, University of California did not have a football team. They had in the beginning, and then in the early 1900s, when there were a lot of violence and fatalities, California Berkeley stopped playing football because they were afraid, you know, afraid of violence and fatality. So instead of football, they had rugby, and they kept up that with that, you know, uh, until finally, like 15 or 16, they decided that clamor, the public clamor was, "We want football back. We want football back." But so they tell the, the rugby coach, okay, we want to play football. The thing is the rugby coach didn't know a first, didn't know a bloody thing about football, nothing at all. Uh, so we figured, what do I do? What do I do? 
so he started he started combing around the west coast i'm looking for a guy to coach the football team and there were no takers and he said you're going to have to go east my friend and find someone so he gets on a train and he stops off and he's asked, can you help me find a football coach? I mean, it was funny. I, the thing I read it up on, they said, local newspapers are saying, hey, this guy's looking for a football coach. And it was being carried nationwide. Finally, he gets to Illinois and he talks to Bob Zupke of Illinois. He said, do you know of anyone who can coach? And Zupke said, well, I can't do it myself. Maybe you ought to talk to Andy Smith at Purdue. Then he goes to another school. And they, the guys tell him the same thing. I can't do it myself. Babe, talk to Andy Smith at Purdue. So finally, he he scrapes up. He actually had, they had to pass a hat and give him enough money to get to Purdue, West Lafayette. And he meets up with Andy Smith. And Smith at the time, he was coaching at Purdue, but his record was not exactly the best in the world. It was kind of just average. He wasn't he wasn't really competing in the what now we know is the Big Ten Conference. And this guy whose name escapes me talks. It tells his plight. You know, said we need a football coach. We I don't know the first thing about football. Can you teach us? Can you come out west and teach us? And Andy Smith, who's going nowhere fast at Purdue, all of a sudden sees the opportunity. I can go into a vacuum, get this raw talent, and start from absolute scratch. They don't, I've got a blank slate. I can write it any way I write it. He jumps at the opportunity. And in 1916, he goes out to Berkeley, California, and he gets all these raw kids who never played a game of football before, and he teaches them from absolute scratch, and he builds it up slowly but surely. Okay, from 16, 17, 18, and 19, he builds it up, in, establishing his systems. And finally, in 1920, and also while he's establishing the systems, he is networking with all the high schoolers in California. He's networking with them. He said, you got good kids. you got good, strong athletes. Send them to me, and I will make football players out of them. And guess what? He gets the cream of the crop of California youth. And by 1920, is the first of his wonder teams. I mean... For four straight years, he dominates what the Pacific Coast Conference, winning four consecutive Pacific Coast Conference titles. And in 1920, a perfect season, and the retroactive organizations all across the board considered the California team the national champion. And they won the, they won the 1921 Rose Bowl against Ohio State, annihilating them 28 to nothing. And they had Brick Muller one of the great athletes that come out of the West coast there. I mean, uh, he was, he was an end, but he was versatile. And not only could he catch passes, he could run, he could do end around reverses and he could throw because he threw this uh, on a trick play. He threw a 28 yard touchdown pass. That actually was the game breaker that really uh, iced the game for California, the 1921 Rose bowl. And again, he's there for this 1922, uh, 21 California team. That's going to play in the 22 Rose bowl. Everything. Uh, Every all the experts thought California's going to destroy Washington and Jefferson. No chance at all. But guess what happens? A freak rainstorm happens in Pasadena because it never rains in California. It never does, especially not in the Los Angeles area. I think there was a song about that once upon a time, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But guess what? It poured rain. And it made the stadium, not the present-day Pasadena Stadium. That came after the, the 22 Rose Bowl game because this 22 Rose Bowl game was the last one that was played at Tournament Park in Pasadena. That was the last one. Then they built the modern-day stadium that we know and love today. 
So, but it turned the whole field into an absolute quagmire and that undermined California's speed because and trickery because that's what they relied on with their offense because they had an extreme high-octane offense. They would average like 50, 60, sometimes 70 points a game. They would just kill everybody. Great defense and powerful offense. But that muddy, that muddy field took away their speed and it killed their passing game. Meanwhile, with Washington Jefferson, who was coached by future NFL coaching legend Greasy Neal, they they come out they come out west, to, and this is an incredible story. I someone I wish someone would make a movie out of this because it has the elements of a movie. All he does is this coach have eleven guys with him. That's all he could spare. That's all they had the budget for. They bring eleven guys with them. They get on a train, and on the on the train ride it takes a few days. One of their players gets sick with pneumonia. And all of a sudden, he's, I mean, he's really badly sick. And all of a sudden, you can't, all of a sudden, you're going to have to forfeit the game because you only got 10 healthy guys. But guess what? Another guy, another player stowed away on the train and then <laughs> it reveals himself. And finally, we got 11 guys here. Oh, I mean, talk about, I mean, you can see it in the movie. I mean, can you just picture it? What are we going to do with the guy? Comes- the package compartment, <laughs> stow in the package compartment. And, and okay, we got enough guys. And that's all they did. No substitutions. 11 guys against uh, the California team, which had enormous depth. That was another uh, aspect of Andy Smith's teams. He had so many guys. He had a depth chart. He could feel, feel four complete football teams and substitute at will. I mean, incredible depth. But uh, but the one another thing that had going for Washington Jefferson is size. Their players were bigger. California's guys were smaller but quicker. But you have that muddy field takes away the quickness. So basically, what you have is stalemate. And Andy Smith of California actually kind of anticipated this. He knew with that rainstorm. He said, "I don't think we're going to score that many points today." I mean, he was he, he, he accepted the reality of the situation. And as the game went on. It was just stalemate after stalemate. Um, California never completed one single pass. Zilch. Zero passing yardage. And it just it kept getting bogged down. In fact, Washington Jefferson actually scored a touchdown. I think it was like a third quarter, something like that. But they called it back on a penalty. And then California's defense held. And, and that's another aspect of Andy Smith's teams. He, he, was, he was very much like Hurry Up Yost that we talked about last week. Defense first, always, if your defense is sound, everything will falls into place there. I'd rather have the great defense than the great offense and all that. And always capitalizing on opponents' mistakes there. So what you have basically is a stalemate. And they have this mud bath. And at the end of the game, when it ended in a scoreless tie, I think California was driving at the end, but then the clock ran out. And even though it was a scoreless tie, historians look upon it as like a moral victory for Washington Jefferson, because literally these were Davids taking on a Goliath there. And the fact that you held the one or team, one of the greatest offensive powers scoreless, that's got to be seen as a symbolic victory. And the fact that that the penalty that they scored a touchdown, they called it back on a penalty and was a disputed penalty too. In a sense, it's, it's a moral victory. It has to be, it has to be seen in that light. And actually it cost California a retroactive shot at the national championship because the, the retroactive organizations actually rewarded other people and all that. And, uh, and actually it cost Danny Smith because had he won that Rose bowl game, 
I got him ranked at 23rd. It would have helped him on all four of my ranking categories. And he would have finished uh, even higher, quite possibly among the top 20, according to my calculations. I mean, that four-year period from 20 to 23 uh, is this, was the seventh greatest uh, five consecutive years, according to my calculations. He ranks seventh in the BQ rating, which is the third of my four uh, uh, standards uh, when rating uh, college football coaches, your best five consecutive seasons. His was the seventh greatest of all time. And at the time, it was the second greatest of all time because only hurry up Yost's period from uh, 1904 was superior to his. And now he ranks seventh because you had five other coaches who came after him who did for even better in all of that. But what Smith, I mean, it, it, it's still an immortal matchup. And since that time, there's never been another tie game in Rose Bowl history. And uh, and I there and it's, I think it was like the first scoreless tie in bowl game history. It had to be because I don't know what the other three were. I have to look them up. I don't know which bowl games that took place, those scoreless ties. But it was the first scoreless tie in major bowl game history there. And Greasy Neal later went on to greater fame uh, in the NFL. At first, he was a college coach. He coached at Washington Jefferson. He coached uh, at some, I forget, some Virginia colleges like West Virginia and all that. He was even an assistant coach at Yale, and he helped Clint Frank win the third, I think it was the second or third Heisman Trophy ever awarded there. He, he was an assistant coach at Yale. And he later became head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And he literally converted the Eagles, who back then, in the early 40s, they were the doormats of the NFL. I mean, utterly wingless. They couldn't do anything right. And he actually... Slowly but surely, starting from 1941, he coached 10 seasons with the Eagles, built it up draft choice after draft choice, and starting in 1947, they won three consecutive Eastern Conference titles and won the 1940, uh, 1948 and 1949 NFL titles there. And this is unique. It's never been replicated. He is, to this day, he is the only NFL coach to win two consecutive championships via shutout. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. In 1948, he beat the Chicago Cardinals seven to nothing in a blizzard and in Philadelphia's Shy Park, which later became Connie Mack Stadium. And then the following year, in 1949, in another freak Los Angeles rainstorm, he beat the Los Angeles Rams 14 to nothing. And it, it, just like the 1922 Rose Bowl, it, 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 the LA Memorial Coliseum where the Rams played was a quagmire. But this time the Eagles were able to score two touchdowns and win 14 to nothing there. And it, it's it was amazing. And also Greasy Neal is featured in my second book, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. He's he's ranked up there. I mean, before the arrival of Andy Reid, he was the greatest Philadelphia Eagles head coach of all time. And then Andy Reid uh, basically surpassed almost all of his records. I think Neal still remains the greatest Eagles coach. I think in terms of winning percentage, I think, yeah. And also world championships won because he won two NFL titles and, and uh, you know, uh, Doug, you know, Doug Peterson only got the one, Doug the one, one and all of that. But um, it's like, it was like one of those uh, classic moments, you know, uh, and college football history. I remember, I remember reading about that, uh, that, that tie game as a kid. I remember someone came out with a book. It was like one of those kids books and they talked about that game there. And there's, there's some other historical aspects. Uh, it was the first Rose Bowl game where you had an African-American quarterback because Washington Jefferson's quarterback. Oh, what was his name here? Um, oh, what was his name here? Uh, Charles Fremont West. Yeah, he was he was their quarterback. Uh, 
uh, at Washington Jefferson there. First African-American quarterback to play in a Rose Bowl game there. Uh, and also another first was that one of Washington Jefferson's players, uh, name was Russ Stein, uh, no, not Russ, Hal Erickson. The only uh, first, uh, yeah, the only man ever to play two Rose Bowls for two different teams because in 1919, he played in 1919 Rose Bowl for the Great Lakes Naval team. And one of his teammates was George Hallison, Jimmy Konzelman. And that Great Lakes team actually won uh, won the, the, the game there. You know, it, it was right at the aftermath of World War One and all of that. So that was another uh, historical first in uh, Rose Bowl game history. And again, last time a very small school ever competed in a Rose Bowl game. So that sums up for the 1922 Rose Bowl there. Well, wow, that was uh, some great research, great stories uh, there yeah. from that game, and uh, you know, excellent uh, connotation yeah. of the, describing that game to us. So, so thank you so much for that. Now, you mentioned both of your books uh, in the talk. You know, Greasy Neal being in the Lords of Gridiron Two, the NFL book uh, coaches, and you talked to a, lot, a couple different people about Lords of Gridiron 1. Why don't you uh, take this a moment here and share with the listeners where they can pick up your books at, Matthew? Uh, all of my books are available at Amazon. And for those two books especially, you they're not available in stores. Uh, you must buy it online at Amazon. Just type in my name, Matthew Dibias, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-I-B-I-A-S-E, or just type in the titles, Lords of the Great Iron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, or Lords of the Great Iron 2, Roman numeral 2, uh, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. Also, my second book, The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's uh, Greatest General Managers, is up also up at Amazon and only available at Amazon if you're so interested there. But that's where you can find them. All right. Well, Matthew, uh, thank you very much for coming and sharing uh, in our celebration of the Rose Bowl. I know we've got you on a few more times here during the month to talk about some other great Rose Bowl games in history, and uh, we can't wait to hear those too. So thanks a lot for sharing with us. Thanks, Darren. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour.
How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.